One. What a blessing it is to be able to come together on a beautiful day like this and to uh, worship God together, to spend some time looking into His Word and thinking about the things that He has to tell us. And we're happy that you're a part of this assembly this morning. Back in the 1950s, Christian Herter was the governor of Massachusetts. And he was running for a second term. And one day he had been campaigning hard all day, right through lunch, hadn't had anything to eat. Late in the afternoon, he found himself campaigning at a church picnic. And by then he was really famished. And so he's going through the serving line and he came to the woman who was serving the fried chicken and she put one piece on his plate. And he said, excuse me, but could I have another piece? And she said, no, I was told one piece per customer. That's all you get. And he said, but I'm really hungry. Couldn't I have a second piece? And she said, no, I told you one piece per customer. That's all you get. Christian Herter replied, ma'am, do you know who I am? I'm the governor of this state. And she said, do you know who I am? I'm the lady in charge of the chicken. Now move on. <laughs> now the governor had a certain amount of authority, but when it came to that chicken, the chicken lady was answering to a higher authority and he had to give in to it uh, as well. Authority has been defined as the right to give orders, to make demands, and to enforce obedience. Last Sunday, we talked about the fact that Scripture has been breathed out by God. It is inspired by God. Therefore, it is His Word. And in doing that, we talked about certain implications of that fact. If it, the Scripture is from God, then it has these implications. It is, first of all, a truthful message. We can rely on it. It is, secondly, a useful message. It is profitable, Paul said, for teaching and for correction and for reproof and for training in righteousness. And then it is also an essential message. If it comes from God, you can't ignore it. If it comes from God, you have to hear it. If it comes from God, you must listen to it. This morning, I want to add one more thing to that list of implications of the fact that Scripture comes from God, and that is that it is an authoritative message. It has to be, doesn't it? If it comes from God, it has to carry the authority of God. If it is God's word, if it is God's message and comes from himself, then as a logical necessity, it is an authoritative word. I want us to spend some time this morning looking at three biblical texts. You've already heard them read, but I'm going to be making reference to them again. Three biblical texts that reflect this notion of the authority of Scripture. And I hope you'll be looking at them with me. The first one is Isaiah 55, verses 6 through 11. And this was read at the beginning of the service, but that was a long time ago. So let me read that to you again. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, 
So are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. When Isaiah spoke those words, he was trying to give the people hope. They'd been exiled for 70 years or were going to be exiled. And looking ahead into the future, he's trying to give them hope about what comes after the exile. And he's trying to give them hope that God will yet bless them even after they have been punished. But he can do that only if they repent of their sins. And so he says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. Until they return to God, they cannot have God's blessing. Until they return to God, they cannot have God's forgiveness. Now the assurance that God is compassionate is found in these words. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. You know what that means? It means that God doesn't think like we do. And that's important. We need to realize that. God doesn't think like we do. God's thoughts and his ways are so much higher than our thoughts and our ways that it's impossible for us to really comprehend the difference. God doesn't think like we do. Israel probably thought... That when we get to the end of 70 years of this exile, of this captivity, surely God is going to owe us freedom. He's going to owe us his blessing. We've paid our dues. We've served our sentence. And so it's only right for God to give us what we have coming. And God says, oh, no. No, that's not how it works. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. You will have that redemption because you owe me repentance. Why had they gone into captivity? Because they'd broken God's covenant. They'd violated his will. They'd ignored his law. And that's what got them into trouble in the first place. And they're not going to get out of it until they repent of that. It doesn't matter if they were in captivity 70 years or 140 years or 1,000 years. Until they repented, they were not going to be able to have God's blessing. And God wants them to understand that. He doesn't think like we do. He says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. There is simply no comparison. And then in verses 10 and 11, he says, as the rain comes down from heaven and causes the plants to sprout, so shall my word be that comes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. It's going to be fulfilled. You know what that means? That means that God's word, unlike mine and unlike yours, is absolutely effective. I can say anything I want, but that doesn't mean it happens. I can give any instruction I want. That doesn't mean it's going to take place. But when God speaks, when God utters his word, it's going to happen. You get that all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, don't you? In the beginning, uh, God created the heavens and the earth. How did he do that? He spoke his word. He said, let there be, 
light and there was light and let there be the animals and let there be the fish and let there be the uh, moon and the stars and hell. He just said it. And it happened because his word is absolutely effective. Whatever he says comes to pass. That is not true of anybody except God. His word is so absolutely authoritative that it is also absolutely effective. The second text I want us to look at is John 12, 44 to 50. Jesus had only recently arrived in Jerusalem for the last time. He's headed for the cross and he knows it. And the opposition to him from the religious leaders is fierce. And so he keeps having these verbal confrontations with them, these clashes with them, because they keep challenging him and they keep making accusations against him. And he keeps trying to get them to see and to understand who he is and what they need to hear from him. And it all comes down to the question of whether or not they believe him. Do they believe him or do they not? And he says it comes down to that because if you believe me, you have believed the Father who sent me. And if you don't believe me, then you're not believing God, he says. And he says, the words that I have spoken are the words that God has given me. So if you don't believe the words that I'm speaking, then you're not believing God. He wanted everybody to believe in him. Because that's the only way that he could bless them. He wants that now. He wants everybody. He wants everybody in this room to believe in him. He wants everybody in the world to believe in him. Because his desire is to bless. And the only way that he can bless is if we believe. And so he says this, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. That's a really important statement, folks, because you know what it means? It means that he is on our side. I don't think we always think of Jesus that way. I think sometimes we think, you know, that uh, God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit are trying to find every way they can to keep us from getting to heaven. Because that's what we want. That's where we want to go. And they're just kind of examining us with a microscope, looking for some reason we can't go. And I think a lot of us think of God and, and of Christ as, as kind of like a football referee, you know, running around with a flag in their pocket, waiting to see us do something wrong so they can throw a flag and call a penalty. Jesus said, I, I didn't come to judge the world. I came to save the world. I came to save the world, he says. I didn't come to judge him, but to save. He is on our side. But then look at verse 48. He says, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The words that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. When you and I stand before God in judgment, what is the standard of judgment? It's not what I want. It's not what you want. It's not what I think. It's not what you think. It is the words that Jesus spoke about who he is, about what he came to do, whether or not we believed him, and whether or not we have sought to follow those words in our lives. That will be our judge. The Apostle John described it in Revelation 20 as the books being opened. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books. Going to be judged by the words of Christ, he says. Why? Because he says, I have not spoken on my own authority, 
But the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Whatever I'm saying, Jesus says, I'm relaying from God. It's the words that he has given to me. Jesus' words were the very words of God, and those words are recorded for us in the pages of Scripture, and that's why Scripture is authoritative. Not because the church says so. Not because somebody a long time ago voted on it. But simply because of the fact that it comes from God. That's it. That's why. So that word that Jesus has spoken will be our judge on the last day. He wants that word to bless us. But it only blesses us when we believe, when we follow it. The third text is Acts 5, 27 to 29. When they brought them, they set them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in that name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And Peter and the apostles said, we must obey God rather than men. You know, that high priest was a pretty heavy dude. He had a lot of clout. He was the highest authority among the Jews. He was the head of that council, that Sanhedrin that eventually condemned Jesus to death. He had a lot of authority. And he and the others with him had given authority, uh, given orders to the apostles. Don't teach in the name of Jesus anymore. Stop saying that. Stop saying that he is the Christ. Stop saying that he's the Messiah. Stop saying that he's the one who's been sent by God. Stop saying that we have crucified the Lord of glory. Stop saying that. And their answer was a simple one. We have to obey God rather than men. Peter let them know that there is a higher authority, the authority of God himself. And given the choice between the two, there's no question what they were going to do. God has the last word for his people. And whatever authority gets in the way of that word from God simply has to be disobeyed. It simply has to be disobeyed. And living in this world, that's going to happen. There are going to come times when people like the high priest or when government officials or others try to tell the people of God what they can and cannot do when God has spoken otherwise. And when that happens, we have only one choice. And that is to do what God has said and not what humans say. And that word is what we have now contained in Scripture. And so that word has to have for us the final authority. Whatever other questions we have about it, whatever the complex circumstances might be, and we talk about those and we think about those, the first question has to be, what has God said? What has God said? And most of the time, that's just going to finish it. That's just going to answer it. All of the time, that should be the answer. Most of the time, it's just clear and simple. It's just a matter of saying what the apostle said. We must obey God rather than men. 
His word has authority. It is his word that will not return to his, him empty. It is his word that is higher than our word, his thoughts that are higher than our thoughts. We don't have choices there. We don't have options. Well, if his word has authority, what specifically does it have authority over? It has authority, first of all, over what we believe. You know, there are a lot of ways that people decide what they're going to believe. One of the most common ways is religious tradition. A lot of people just sort of absorb whatever their parents and others around them have taught them or said to them or modeled before them without ever thinking about it. For some people, that means that they grow up with certain beliefs just because that's what the people around them believe. That's what they always heard. They never thought about it. They never looked into Scripture to see if that's what it said. They just, they just absorbed it. Sometimes they don't absorb anything because nobody's giving them anything. They're not giving them any teaching. They're not giving them any guidance. And so they absorb that, that you can be indifferent about God, that you can ignore God, that you don't need to worship God, that you can just sort of do your own thing. That is their religious tradition. Churches even often place more emphasis on their traditions than they do on Scripture. I remember when I was... Uh, Years ago, I began taking classes uh, at a, a, a seminary when we lived in St. Louis. And we were introducing ourselves in this class. It wasn't a very big class. The first night of the, of the class, and the prof uh, professor said, tell a little bit about yourself. And I said, well, I'm, I'm the minister for the Southside Church of Christ. He said, oh, is that a confessional church? And I said, I'm sorry. I don't have any idea what you mean. I, I don't know what that means. And he said... Well, that means do you, do you organize yourselves and abide by creeds, by creedal confessions? And I said, no. No, if that's what you mean by that, we're not a confessional church. We kind of stay away from creeds in churches of Christ, and for good reason. You know what creeds are? Creeds are people's thoughts about what Scripture says distilled into an authoritative statement and they can be really dangerous because they may be right and they may be dead wrong but what happens is when you give adherence to the creed then you stop looking at the word of God to see what it says and you just assume that the creed's got it right and it may not have it right. It may have it absolutely wrong. And you see, all creeds are of human origin. And what did God say about his words and ours? His words are not ours. His thoughts are not ours. His ways are not ours. They're so much higher. We're bound to get that wrong. These religious traditions can happen to anybody. They happen to us as well. I remember one time I went to an elder in the church. I'd just begun preaching. And there were so many things I didn't know, even more than now. And, and there was this question came up, and I, I, somebody had raised a question, and, and it was about some traditional belief. I don't even remember what it was, but I went to this elder, a godly man, loved him. He was a wonderful guy. And I, and I said, I, I don't know what to think about this. And he said, oh, he said, the old pioneers settled that a long time ago. And I started flipping through my Bible, old pioneers, old pioneers. 
comes right after Jude 7. If you didn't get that, you need to look that up. But for him, because somebody had said it in the past, that made it so. Rather than the question being, is that what God's word says? I like the way my friend Dan Williams put it. He said, we have a high view of scripture because we have a low view of human traditions. And that's how it needs to be. That's a perspective that we need to maintain. But traditions are one way people decide what to believe. Emotions is another way people decide what to believe. I think that's the way most people nowadays decide what they're going to believe. And you'll hear people say things like this. Well, this is what I feel is surely true and right, so it must be. I feel it so strongly. It's got to be right. And so the standard becomes their emotions. It becomes their feelings. And if they feel strongly enough about something, they assume that it must be the right thing. Emotions play such a powerful role in the faith of so many that they don't even realize it. They, they may think that they have a biblical faith, but the faith that they have doesn't come from the Bible. I remember a student of mine a number of years ago who wonderful kid, and he, he was so active in a campus organization, a Christian campus organization. He was always talking about Jesus. And he made it a point to let me know that the first night, how much he loved Jesus and how devoted he was to Jesus. And about a week into the course, when he'd actually been reading the Bible, he came to me after class one day and he said, you know, this is the first time I've ever read any of the Gospels. And I said, then what Jesus have you been talking about? How do you know? What he was talking about was an emotional feeling that he had that he called Jesus. It was a conviction that he had that he called Jesus. And I'm glad he had that one. He could have had a lot worse. But it wasn't rooted in what Scripture says about Jesus. And I said, you know, once you've read the Gospels, then you'll know whether you love Jesus or not. The real Jesus, not just the Jesus of your imagination. The church needs always to be listening to the voice of God in Scripture to know what His will is, what we ought to believe and what we ought not to believe. Scripture itself gives us a lot of warnings against false teachings. They creep in so easily and the only way to avoid those is to listen to the true teachings from the words of Scripture. Only God's Word has the authority to tell us what we ought to believe. But also God's word has authority over how we live. It's a very personal thing. When it comes down to our personal morality and ethics as we describe them, scripture ought to be the standard for everything. For whatever we think or whatever we believe or however we act, no matter where we are. One thing I want you to remember, Scripture does not change, even though society's standards do. Because the standards of society are changing all the time. Think about it now. The things in the Bible, the most recent things, are almost 2,000 years old. And think how many different cultures, into how many different cultures the Bible has gone, the gospel has gone. And yet it's been relevant to all of them. And think how many of those cultures have undergone various evolutions and various changes. 
That doesn't change at all what Scripture says. That doesn't change at all what Scripture means. We tend to read Scripture to reflect the current trends of our society, and that's a huge mistake. That's a huge mistake. If we're looking at society and we're looking at the ways of our culture and we're looking at the mores among about the people among whom we live and then we say, oh, that must be what the Bible is talking about, we're in real trouble. We are in real trouble. We've got to be looking first at the word and then looking at the world. Not looking at the world and then looking at the word and trying to get the word to give approval to the world. When it comes to personal morals and ethics, we sometimes get that backward. We sometimes say, what do I think and how do I feel? And then interpret scripture accordingly. When it ought to be the other way around. With any moral or ethical question, what does God's word say? Therefore, how should I act not everything is right just because we want it to be right not everything is right just because we want it to be right remember what isaiah 55 said my thoughts are not your thoughts neither are my ways your ways god may think just the opposite of what you and i think he may think just the opposite of what our culture is telling us and we have to let his word be the final authority on that. I want to give you one example of that. Where the church is beginning to let the world dictate what we think when God has spoken so clearly. And that's in regard to the whole issue of same-sex marriage and same-sex attractions. And I'm not picking on this because it's an easy target. I'm talking about it because this is a change that is happening in the church. It's been on the horizon for a long time. And now a lot of people are just saying, you know, we've looked at the word again and we believe we've been wrong about this all along. And we need to rethink what we've been saying. Scripture speaks clearly. It always has and we used to get that. We used to understand that. We used to know what it said. We used to understand what Genesis 19 was about when it was talking about Sodom and Gomorrah and about the men of Sodom who wanted to know those two men, those two angels who came to visit Lot, that they wanted to have sexual relations with them, and they were begged, do not behave so wickedly. We used to understand that. We used to get that that's why God brought destruction on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, not just for that one sin, but because of all their sins. But somehow folks are telling us now that's not what that's about at all. We need to reread that. We need to rethink it, we're told. We're told that Leviticus 20 isn't saying what we know that it's always said. The law of Moses strongly condemned same-sex relationships and called them an abomination that's a pretty strong word, an abomination. And yet now we're saying maybe it's really not so bad. Maybe there's a way to be, a way to be Christianly homosexual. That's what we're being told. We used to understand 1 Corinthians 6 9 where Paul said along with idolatry and adultery, 
that men who practice homosexuality, that is his language, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now we're being told maybe they will. We used to understand Romans 1, 26 and 27 that says that both men and women who engage in same-sex relationships do so because they don't know God and as a result they stand under his judgment. Now we're being told maybe they don't stand under that judgment after all. We're hearing more and more in the church of those who are saying maybe we need to rethink this. Maybe we haven't understood this correctly. Let me be clear about something. We do need to rethink our attitudes. We do need to rethink that. We do need to rethink that and to understand that people who practice these things are not necessarily worse sinners than the rest of us. We are all sinners saved by grace. And if we're not saved by God's grace, we'll never be saved at all. And it doesn't matter whether our sins are homosexual sins or if they are sins of another nature. They are sins. And they've got to be forgiven by the blood of Christ. And we need to understand that. We need to understand that people who practice these things can have a place in God's kingdom if they're willing to repent of their sins just like everybody else. It's not making a special category out of them. It's saying, no, it's just like everybody else. We've all got to come to repentance of our sins to have a place in God's kingdom. We need to rethink our attitudes and remember that God loves all sinners. And if he doesn't, how do we know he loves us? He loves all sinners. He loves all of us. And that others are just as capable of repentance as anyone. We need to rethink our attitudes and be sure that we're clear about that. Be sure that the gospel is really for all. It is for those who practice these sins as well as it is for those who practice any other kinds of sins. What we don't need to rethink is what the Bible says about it. Because it is so clear that to talk about rethinking it must be an insult to our maker. We do not need to rethink that. It is not to be tolerated within the body of Christ. It is not something to be proud of. It is something to be repented of. Scripture has not changed. Society has changed. And some of us have made the mistake of changing with it. Rather than standing firm with what God has said. Let me tell you something. We do not sit in judgment on the word of God. It is not for us to read the scripture and say, well, that was, you know, God did a pretty good job right there. And in other places say, well, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe our culture knows better. We don't sit in judgment on God's word. God's word sits in judgment on us. Always. His word is authoritative. James 1, verses 21 and 22 says, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. The message of the gospel, the message contained in the Bible is able to save your soul, anybody's soul, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done. 
But we are called on to do three things if we want to be saved. First of all, he says to put away all filthiness and wickedness. In other words, repent. Whatever the sin is, repent of it and turn to God. The second thing he says is to receive the implanted word with meekness. Take it in. Receive it with meekness. Stop trying to judge the word and let the word judge you. He's the one who has authority, not us. And the third thing he says is be doers of the word and not hearers only. The gospel is a message that is not intended just to be agreed to. It is a message to be obeyed. And that's why when it was first proclaimed and people cried out in their lostness, in the recognition that they were set apart or cut apart from God and that they had no hope, and they cried out and said, what do we do? They were told to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They weren't told to do whatever they thought they ought to do. They weren't told to just think about it. They weren't told to just feel bad about it. They were told to do something, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins and receive the gift of God's spirit. That's that initial obedience. And then there is that continual obedience that we give to God as we live day by day under his word. God wants to forgive you and bless you why don't you let him do it today? Let's stand together and sing. Jesus is tenderly calling thee home.